Well, good morning. My name is John Allen. Welcome to Risen Church, and uh, I hope you're having a great morning. And, um, you know, if you're not having a great morning, then at least you're not running 26 miles right now. So that's, that's a thing that's happening. <laughs> Apparently, I am personally very glad that I am not running 26 miles right now. Um, and by running 26 miles, I would be quitting at least at this point because uh, I am not a great runner. Um, but you may have been rerouted in your normal route to church this morning. Um, some of the roads are blocked off for the Shamrock Marathon. You can even see some of them probably running still. I think that... Uh, uh, I'd, I'd be those guys. There, I think some people are finished. Some people are still rolling. Um, I don't know where they're at at this point. But um, anyway, uh, I do love um, St. Patrick's Day. Uh, I love the Shamrock Marathon, all the stuff that's happening. But the reason I love it isn't because of the reasons that most people love St. Patrick's Day. A lot of people love St. Patrick's Day because they're like, you know, a green beer and leprechauns and all that stuff. And uh, it, I, that's not the reason why I like it. Um, I mean, hey. Green beer, that's kind of cool, right? But that's not the purpose of the holiday. That's not the purpose of St. Patrick's Day. The reason that I love St. Patrick's Day is because of who St. Patrick was, right, and what he did. In fact, um, St. Patrick, or Patrick, was a man who was a church planter. Uh, he was a, a man that brought the gospel of Jesus Christ to the island of Ireland, to the Irish people, even after they had kidnapped him as a child and enslaved him and abused him for years. His childhood was spent as an enslaved, abused um, kid in Ireland. He was actually from Britain, and he was, again, kidnapped and taken into slavery, but he escaped when he was about 22 years old, and he made his way back to Britain into a Christianized world, and that's where he changed his name from, his original name was Maywin Sakat, and he changed his name to Patrick, which is from the Latin Patricius, which means of noble origin. He was so thankful for his Christian roots that he changed his name to align his very identity with it, and in the process, he was called by God to take the gospel of Jesus Christ back to his captors. The very people who had abused and enslaved him were the people that he then spent the rest of his life to reach, engage, embrace, and even equip with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he spent the rest of his years in Ireland with a team of people planting churches all over Ireland. And we talked about this uh, last week um, as we dove into uh, Psalm 67. Um, so I wanted you to understand the good race that St. Patrick won or ran, um, and, and I would say he won because he, I, I think he is a man that when he stood before the Lord, he got a well done, my good and faithful servant, which is the ultimate prize, amen? And so that is what I wanted you to understand, and so last week, uh, Psalm 67, we, we went through that and we saw that it was a song about God's heart for all people who are far from him, even in other nations. And so right now, I'm also realizing I do this often. The children can be released <laughs> to the kids' ministry. Thank you, Lydia. Um, and so all the kids are probably up right now. If you're not, you're welcome to go fourth through sixth grade. Um, and so anyway, yeah, she's like, what are you doing? We can go now. All right, so. <laughs> um, but now, say, hey, the kids need to know about St. Patrick too, right? We got to 
So, all right. So anyway, that's, uh, that's what we looked at. We looked at Psalm 67 um, last week, which is a song about God's heart for uh, all those who are far from him, even other nations. In fact, in the Old Testament, when we see the term for the nations, it's talking about nations who don't know God, people who are far from him. And so we introduced uh, also the Park family, uh, Peter and Grace Park and their children, um, who were going to be, uh, or who have been called to um, the nations, literally in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, and so they are been, they've been called to uh, not just plant a church, but to uh, plant a church. It's going to be called a Harvest Church, and to uh, create a church planting hub, like a sending hub in one of the most unreached areas of the world, and so. Uh, Praise God, we were able to uh, raise through your generosity this past week. Um, we were blessed to give over $12,000 to help the parks. Yeah, give, praise God. Uh, and that's a good jump start to help them uh, establish Harvest Church, which is going to be the name of their church, or is the name of their church, in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. And so, uh, again, I'm going to recap here. Just Psalm 67, verse 1 through 2, just to really understand and catch the weight of what we're able to partner in with them. It says this, May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. And it says, Selah, which means pause and pray. Take that in, right? Like to take in the fact that we have been blessed. Like if you are in Christ, he has been gracious to you, and you have been blessed, and his face is shining upon you. And then verse 2 of Psalm 67, that your way may be known on earth. Not your way, God's way. Your saving power among all nations. So what are we blessed for? There's a purpose. You've been blessed to bless. You've been blessed so that God's way the way, the truth, and the life would be known on earth even. Your saving power among all nations. And in verse 3, let the, let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. And so this is what we're talking about when we, we share our uh, mission for our church. We talk about this every week. We exist to share life in Christ, our risen Lord, with each other, our city, and beyond. And so this is the beyond part, right? Even in Malaysia, which Malaysia isn't just way over there. It's like the other side of the planet, right? And so we're talking ends of the earth here. And so one of the ways that we practically partner with churches is through our city. There's a number of different organizations and different church plants that we even will uh, do and will partner with within our city and our region. But this is one of the ways that we practically partner to share Christ even on the other side of the planet. Amen? And so uh, that's, uh, I'm excited to announce that, and we're going to be continuing to partner with them, not just financially, but also in prayer, and also, um, who knows, God may bless us to send some teams even to Malaysia in the future. So uh, I'm excited about that, but um, this morning we're going to continue through our series in the book of Psalms uh, called Knowing and Enjoying God, and we have come to Psalm 91. And so Psalm 91 is a very popular psalm, you heard it read earlier, um, and, and it's popular for good reason, right? See, while Psalm 67 spells out our mission and purpose on the earth, Psalm 91 is actually a song of protection and deliverance 
even in the midst of that mission. And so we're not just commissioned without opposition. You have an enemy. You have an adversary. And so the truth is, as a Christian, though, you've been called into battle. Like, whether you like it or not, you've been called into battle. Like, this life is lived on the front lines of an eternally significant war. And so while Psalm 67 reminds us of the mission and our purpose, Psalm 91 is actually an anthem of God's deliverance even in the midst of the war. So it's not just an anthem. This is a psalm or a song in itself, which is used even as a weapon. This song is to be a weapon of warfare. And so this morning, I want to show you how to wield it. And see, there's a reason this psalm is so popular. It's popular because it's powerful. But like all powerful weapons, if you use it in the wrong way, it can also be very dangerous. In fact, for often, like a long time, I have read this psalm, and maybe as she was reading this passage to you, reading through this psalm, you were a bit confused. Like, how can that be? Like, how can it be that God's promised us that, like, I won't even strike my foot upon a rock? Like, I'm not even going to stub my toe in this world? Like, how is, what? Is that true? So if I do stub my toe or experience pain or suffering or trial, does that mean God doesn't love me? Does that mean he's not with me? Does that mean that these these promises are actually lies? Is that what that is? See, I want you to understand that there is a way that God wants you to understand and apply this psalm. But there is also a way that Satan, your enemy, wants you to understand and apply this psalm. And so for the next couple of weeks, we're going to be in this psalm, Psalm 91. And so it's going to be sort of like a mini-series within the Psalms series, okay? So we're going to take uh, the next couple of weeks to look at this psalm. And here's what I want you to get from this psalm as a whole. So if you get nothing else over the next couple of weeks from anything that we say as we walk through this psalm, here's what I want you to get. You ready? God doesn't always deliver us from the fire. But if Jesus is your refuge, he will always deliver you through it. Okay? God doesn't always deliver us from the fire, but if Jesus is your refuge, he will always deliver you through it. Now, if you've been with us long, then this point probably sounds familiar to you because I've preached it before, right? And I'm going to preach it again because this is a common thread and theme, not only throughout the Psalms, but throughout the Bible. And the reason it comes up over and over and over again is because this is a promise that we tend to lose sight of most especially when the heat gets turned up in our lives. We forget these things, and then that's when the enemy can come to you and say, God doesn't really love you, or he wouldn't allow you to walk through this. Those are the moments when we need to understand these truths even more. And so that's exactly what this song is about. This is a song of God's deliverance through the heat of spiritual warfare. And I like it or not, whether you acknowledge it or not, if you are human, then you are on the front lines of a very real spiritual war. Now, that doesn't mean, like sometimes people are like, oh man, you became a Christian and now you're engaged in warfare. That's not, what that, that's not how that works. You are always 
involved in this battle. The question now is, which side are you on? Because there's no neutral ground in this thing. So this morning, I want to hone in on the spiritual reality of enjoying God even in the midst of this battle, even in the midst of difficulty, which again, these are very real themes throughout the Psalms. In the midst of the setbacks, in the midst of the curveballs, when life throws things at you that you did not expect and you find yourself flailing and confused, what do you do? Right? Like when life throws you a curveball. We got any baseball players in here? My son's in baseball right now, and he's, he's, uh, uh, it's, the season is cranking up right now, and one of the things that um, you learn is when, when the kids start to learn to throw a curveball, right, the ball comes in, and then suddenly right before he gets to the plate, it goes, and it curves down and drops, and it's like, what just happened? And if you're not ready, if you're not set back and waiting on it, what happens? You get like this, and then you swing, and you're like, you, you expect a fastball, and you swing, and you're like, whoa, and the ball goes like that, and then you just kind of look all dumb and flailing around, and you're just like confused, and everybody's laughing at you. Sometimes that's how life can feel, though, right? Life can feel like that when we get a curveball. Like when you expect something from this life, and then you look at your life, and it's not your current reality. Like how are we to think about life and even enjoy God in the space between what is and what we hope for? Like as I said, this is going to be part one of our Psalm 91 mini-series, and so we're just going to tackle the first two verses of this psalm as we identify the battle we're actually in, okay? So look now with me. Psalm 91, verse 1 through 2. It says this. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Do you see? I want you to see how personal that is, how relational that is. Just to pay attention to the way this song begins. Like, listen to the language of protection and safety here. He who dwells in the shadow, he who dwells in the shelter, it's the idea here is that there, there's a lot of high and lofty realities and spiritual realities even in this world. And this might be a paradigm shifter for many of you, but that's okay. That's, that's why we look at God's word for what God's word says and not what culture wants us to understand it, how cult, culture and society want us to understand it. We look, it for, look at it for what it is. And when it talks about high and lofty realities, when we see these, when it talks about the most high it's contrasting the most high with lesser high. Here's what I mean. Many kings, many rulers, even spirits. This world is jam-packed with cosmic powers, principalities, and rulers over this dark age. And I'm not just talking about physical kings or presidents. See, the backdrop, the backdrop of the redemptive story throughout the scriptures and the whole reason for the cross is that all nations, all peoples, the entire world has been given over to and is ruled by very real 
spiritual powers and principalities that are in rebellion to the true and most high God. See, this is, this is what the scriptures mean when they refer to the Lord as the most high. It means he's higher than all other spiritual deities. The idea that other spiritual beings don't exist is actually a secular idea that's not in line with what the Bible makes clear. Okay? In fact, there are English translations, many English translations, good English translations, who refer to God as the one true God. But hear me, that does not mean he's the only spiritual being. This is important. It just means he's the only one who is true and trustworthy and all-powerful. He is the infinite creator, the Almighty. See, the entire biblical narrative is that the Lord Most High, Yahweh, He chose Israel as His own nation among all nations, among all peoples, and He chose them to be His people and His inheritance. Not because they were great, but because He is gracious. And so all other nations had been, have been disinherited. Like a child who squandered his birthright to feed his lustful appetites. The result is that they are not only ruled by their appetites, but by rejecting the Most High, they have submitted to the rebellious rule of those carnal powers and principalities. We see this theme throughout the Old Testament and even into the New Testament. This is the language that's used. If you want to go back and look at different places where we see that happening, you can look at Jacob and Esau's story, right? You can look at um, the prodigal son story. There's so much going on in this theme or with this theme throughout the scriptures. And what we see is that this is the state of all nations, all peoples, all ethnicities. The entire point of God's chosen people was to bless them to be a blessing in a fallen and jacked up and twisted world that is ruled by powers and principalities that are in rebellion to the Most High God. They were to be the Most High God's chosen and blessed people, belonging to none other, no other gods. None of the lesser ones or deities. And so through them, the true King of all kings, the Lord of all lords, Jesus Christ, would then come and redeem all nations, all tribes, and all tongues. So the enemy, who held authority over this fallen world, would then fall like lightning from the sky. As the Most High God breaks into the earthly realm and broke Satan's authority and grip of deception over the nations. This is what we see in the scriptures. This is what we see in the New Testament. This is what happened. This is what took place. In fact, you guys ready? Buckle up, because we're going in. You guys ready for this? You might always think you're ready. You might not be ready, but whatever. Here we go. Revelation 20 even pulls back the spiritual, or sorry, the physical veil and gives us insight into the spiritual reality of what was accomplished through Christ's life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension unto power, all power in heaven and on earth, all authority. And it tells us this, that Satan was seized and bound and thrown into a pit that was sealed over him so that he might not deceive the nations. So that he might not deceive the nations. That doesn't mean he's not still ruling and reigning in this fallen world. Not at all. He's still very powerful. 
and he's still lying and deceiving and twisting the truth. But because of Jesus, his earthly authority to deceive all nations has been restrained. And all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus Christ who has commissioned his church, his blood-bought, spirit-filled believers, his people, to go and make disciples of all nations. Not just Israel. All peoples. All peoples who were once under the dominion of Satan have now been liberated through the good news of Jesus Christ from their bondage. Hello! That's you and me. That's us. Like This is our spiritual reality, and this is our commission. Like This is why Patrick, St. Patrick, was able to take the gospel even to the Irish. It's why it was even a possibility for him to bring this good news that liberated them from those powers and principalities that ruled over them. This is why we're able to take the good news of the kingdom to our neighbors next door in your neighborhoods. And this is how and why we're able to take the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. Make no mistake, you've got a very real adversary. And he's reeling and he's raging. But King Jesus has his foot on his throat. And he's empowered you to take advantage of the opportunity. This is the Great Commission. This is what scriptures like Psalm 82 verse 8 mean when they say things like Psalm 82 8, Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. Like even the once disinherited nations and the way that he inherits them, like though they were disinherited, the way he brings them back, the way he inherits the nations, the way that he redeems them is through the Great Commission. You are the result of that in this room. P.S. When people say St. Patrick drove out all the snakes in Ireland, you guys ever heard that before? It's like a legend. Like there's no snakes in Ireland. I don't know if you knew that or not. There's no snakes in Ireland apparently. And they'll say, well, the, the, Saint, the reason there's no snakes in Ireland is because St. Patrick drove them all out, right? Um, and some will just say, that's a silly legend. There were never snakes in Ireland. It's an island, and that's the reason, and it's, you know. But I don't think he was, they, that legend has ever been talking about actual physical snakes. You see, it, I, I think it's talking about demonic powers and principalities, and the truth is, is that by bringing the gospel to bear upon that island, he did, in fact, drive out those demonic principalities with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so through Christ, who lived the life we couldn't live, died the death we deserved to die, and conquered sin and death in the grave through the resurrection, ascending to the Father, sitting now at the right hand of power, and all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to him you have been commissioned to go and make disciples of all nations, all peoples, all tribes, all tongues, and walk in his authority over the enemy to do so. Guys, this has always been the mission of God's people. And I want you to see how applicable this ancient song is to our current circumstance. In fact, most scholars actually attribute Psalm 91 to Moses. So this is a big throwback, right? 
that it was written after Moses had led Israel out of slavery in Egypt as they head towards God's promised land. Think about what that means contextually. Think about what that means contextually both for them and how it applies now to you in your circumstance. In our circumstances, the church. I want to pull back the physical veil so you can see this through spiritual lenses, through gospel lenses, okay? Because their journey wasn't easy. They were delivered out of slavery and through the wilderness as they headed toward the promised land. This is your circumstance. They faced a massive desert wilderness, and in so many ways, a desert wasteland is like an anti-Eden. Remember the Garden of Eden? Think about that. A desert wilderness is a blatant image of the effects of sin upon the earth. Like God created humanity to thrive and flourish in intimacy with God, walking in the Garden of Eden in the cool of the day, intimate relationship with him. Life is flourishing. That's what all of the earth was in the beginning, a massive garden. But because of human sin and rebellion, our dominion has now been plagued by sin and these now fallen principalities rule. And so that's one reason why the Bible often depicts desert wastelands as these haunts or dwelling places for the demonic. You see, Psalm 91 is a song about God's people leaving their place of bondage and enslavement and then sojourning through these fallen and even demonically haunted surroundings as they journey towards God's ultimate promised land. And so if you think the deserts of Sinai we're filled with more spiritual adversity than the context that you live in today, you're not paying attention. You see, this is a song of protection and a song of deliverance, not just from the fallen condition and circumstances you face, but through them. Not just out of the wilderness, not just out of the wasteland, not just out of the fire, not just out of this world or that difficult situation or that trouble or tribulation or trial, but through it. In the world, but not of it. And as Jesus prayed for you in John 17, that you would be protected and delivered through it from the evil one. Go read John 17. This is his prayer over you. Psalm 91 is a song of protection and of a promise that his presence would be with you in the midst of it all. Again, I want you to see that this psalm wasn't just written for Moses and Israel as they sojourned through the Sinai desert. Like This psalm is for Daniel and Shadrach, and Meshach, and Abednego, as they sojourned through exile in Babylon. It was for Israel as they sojourned through Babylonian, Persian, Syrian, Greek, Roman oppression. All through the ages, all awaiting their Messiah as they were oppressed under foreign people and foreign gods. And this is for God's covenant family today as we sojourn through a fallen land that is not our own all the while building and growing God's heavenly kingdom that is not of this world. All while we look forward to the physical return of the Most High King. 
when he comes in and he does make it very manifestly physical and restores the garden even better than it was. That's what we're looking forward to. But in the meantime, we're not just waiting on our hands kicking back. We're vigilantly expecting, waiting on the Lord with vigilance and on mission. Hear this. You're to be on mission even now. Like sometimes we think about Moses and Joshua and how they were like armed and going into battle and we see all these stories and we're like, yeah, man, they were on mission. You are to be on mission more than they were, more than Moses in the Exodus, more than Joshua and the conquering of Canaan, more than David and Solomon and all the kings and prophets of the Old Testament. All of that was actually just a physical shadow of the spiritual reality that we're walking in today. We, the church, have been commissioned with an even greater authority to go and make disciples of all nations. And again, you've got an adversary. He's very real. But it's not the kind of adversity you're probably thinking of. Like, it's way more. Like, it's much more significant, and it's much more powerful. Your enemy is much more powerful than you might think but you need to understand that he's already been defeated. Like You need to realize that Psalm 91 isn't just a psalm of physical protection and deliverance. When it's applied well, this psalm is an exorcism. Let me say that again for those in the back. This psalm is an exorcism. Over the next couple of weeks, I'm going to show you that. I'm going to show you how we apply it, how to wield it, how to understand it. And I want you to see that this isn't just, it's not just physical, nor is it just spiritual. Oftentimes, these uh, spiritual truths, by applying the psalm, manifest physically. This thing gets real. But Psalm 91 transcends to the root of what we see and strikes right at the heart of the true spiritual battle that we're all in. But again, the first thing that we've got to do before we can move on and understand any of this, which is why I want to give you this introduction to this psalm to understand it, the first thing you've got to do is identify the battle you're in. Because if you're not identifying the battle, I mean, you don't, this is, none of this will make sense. Like one of the biggest lies that the enemy tells society and even the church today is that we live in a time of peace. Like the ultimate purpose for people is often, for most people, is to pursue their own prosperity and their own comfort. And that's why when, we, when people think about spiritual warfare, like seriously, think about this. When people think about spiritual warfare, they often view themselves as being attacked rather than the ones on the attack. Don't you? Think about it. You think you're the ones under attack instead of being the one on the attack. Like people will say, my finances are under attack or the enemy's trying to keep me from getting that job or that house. And, 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 and hear me, look, those things, you should be praying and asking for those things. That's a good thing. Pray for those things. Those are good things, but make no mistake, they're secondary. They're secondary things. They become primary only when we've misidentified the battle we're actually in. 
Like in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, John Piper puts it like this, and be ready, because this one, go ahead and curl your toes up, because this is going to step on some, it stepped on mine, okay? Like if you want to know whether you've misidentified the battle, look at your prayer life. What are the things you're mostly praying for? Piper puts it like this. It's not surprising that prayer malfunctions when we try to make it a domestic intercom to call upstairs for more comforts in the den. You see, those are spiritual peacetime prayers. But this morning, I want you to see that we're in a spiritual wartime context. I also want you to see that there's great joy in the midst of it, and there's great comfort in the midst of it. But that comfort ain't going to come through those physical things. It's going to come through your comforter, who is the Spirit of God. And so when Jesus talks about building the church and expanding the kingdom of heaven on earth, you need to hear this. He uses offense language. Language like in Matthew 16 where he says, Upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not stand against it. You know why they are having to stand? It's because they're being assaulted. Guys, that's attack mode. St. Patrick understood this on a deep level. That's why he went, right? He was sent. He also understood that there would be extreme opposition, which can be really intimidating to a society that loves their comfort. But don't be fooled, guys. Don't be fooled by this. Like, oftentimes we think, well, well I, you know, if I do that, then I'm going to step into more spiritual warfare, as if that's, le- that's more dangerous than sitting on the sidelines. That's foolish. That's wrong. Like, the comfort that you experience, to tell you the truth, that sideline comfort is actually more dangerous and just as demonic. Remember the reason Israel found themselves enslaved in Egypt in the first place was because they got comfortable in a land that was not their own and they forgot about their God-given purpose. 400 years of sleepy comfort-seeking and then, boom, they're enslaved in a land that is not their own. But God was faithful was faithful to, their pro- to his promise over his people, and he let them out. But it was difficult. And even, there were probably even a few that justified their lack of purpose by saying, well, you know, God's sovereign, and he let us down here, and he's blessed us with all this comfortable Egyptian land. Now, again, there's nothing wrong with comfort and prosperity in itself. Praise God, but they're more, the more prosperity, sorry, the more prosperous you are in this world of warfare, the more intentional you must be to keep your eyes on what matters most. Like, praise God. I'm praying. Go and prosper. I pray for you. I pray that God blesses you and prospers you. And I pray that you leverage that prosperity for his kingdom above all else. C.S. Lewis wrote a great book called The Screwtape Letters. If you haven't read it, I highly encourage you to read it. If you haven't read it in a while, you should read it again, okay? It's a great book, um, and Lewis in the book, it's a series of letters from, and the kind of the, the, the premise of the book is that it's a bunch of letters from one demon to his, like, apprentice demon, instructing him in strategies for tempting and how to tempt his, like, human that's been assigned to him, right? 
his goal is to make sure that the man who's been assigned to him continues on this steady path toward damnation. That's the goal. And so in one place, Lewis writes, prosperity knits a man to the world. He feels that he is finding his place in it, while really it, the world, is finding its place in him. That's sobering. That's good insight. That's very wise. In another place, he writes saying, it's not, he's talking to the, the demon, one demon is talking to the other demon, and he's telling him it's not about trying to get him to like, commit these massive, lavish sins. Like That's not your, your job to, as attacking him. In fact, like he says this. He says, it does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards if cards can do the trick. Don't worry about it. You're fine. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. I talk to people all the time who say they're not against Jesus or the gospel. It's just not that important to them right now. Shh. Like, you've heard it said that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Like, you ever heard that before? The road to hell is paved with good intentions. You hear that a lot, but I would actually say that the road to hell is paved with many comforts. It's also why they say that there's no atheists in foxholes, right? Like, foxholes are like the trenches in war, you know? And they say there's no atheists in foxholes because when the bullets are flying and death is imminent, then people, even the atheists, start praying because they need God. They realize how vulnerable they are and they start praying battle shakes you up and you realize that there's more going on and so it'd be better for their life to fall apart and they begin to look to jesus than to coast into a hellish oblivion in other words just because things are easy and comfortable it doesn't mean you're not fully under attack by an enemy who hates you so wake up O sleeper dress for action the king and the kingdom is at hand. This is also why we're never to release our prayerful grip on God's promises and purpose in our life. Like too often people twist the doctrine of God's sovereignty into an excuse of, for irresponsibility or disengagement. Okay? Think about this. Like it's not like, like you, you, sometimes you might think, well, after all, you know, if God's sovereign, why even show up to work on time? Right? Like why even live responsibly? Why, why live prayerfully with any urgency in my prayers why does anything i do even matter if if i don't pray for that person's salvation then i guess that just wasn't god's desire right like they must not even be his elect like i hope it goes without saying but i i, I i'm partially convinced that it doesn't that approach to life would be called fatalism not even Calvinism. Like Calvinism is oftentimes the perspective that kind of people say focuses on like predestination and God's absolute sovereignty. But even the most ardent Calvinist would call what I just described heresy. 
Like, I very much believe in God's absolute sovereignty. We at this church believe in God's absolute sovereignty and the doctrine of election. But hear me, God's sovereignty is never to be used. It is never used in Scripture, and it's never to be used as an excuse to disengage. The battle is real, and how you engage or disengage does, in fact, matter. In Christ, we've been given the ability to respond and the responsibility to do so. I praise God we've also been given the all-sufficient grace needed to cover us when we fall short. But that's never an excuse to not care. Like the truth is, it's often those who struggle with receiving God's grace that tend towards that fatalistic attitude because it's a way of hiding from the shame of their failures without having to admit it's their responsibility. Grace, though, grace says, that's my fault, and yet his grace is enough. And I'm still loved unconditionally, and that love is what helps me to grow in joy and get in the game. Ultimately, God wins, and all will be used together for his glory and our good. We know that, but don't twist that into a rejection of his call to engage in the battle now. And remember, our battle is not with flesh and blood. This is important, because we, this is a slippery slope too. Ephesians 6, 12, it tells us what our battle is against. And it says, it's against our our battles with the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly or spiritual places. And, And what's this battle about? Well, it's first and foremost, a spiritual battle for souls. Never forget that. This thing is about souls. See, the enemy's been defeated in Christ, but he's still trying to deceive and hold on to as many lost souls as he can. You've been tasked with all authority in heaven and on earth to be the means through which the saving power of God comes to the lost. How can they believe in what they have not heard, and how can they hear unless someone preaches to them, and how can someone preach unless he is sent? Risen church, you have been commissioned. So the enemy, though, wants you to disengage, right? Like, maybe he wants you to think this is a battle of flesh and blood, as if your enemy is a political pundit or a news anchor. Like, he wants you to think that maybe your battle is with those who have been deceived rather than the deceiver. Like, I'm not saying that those people, like, you live in this world, those people often are very deceived, Okay, So we need to use wisdom and feed upon his word and spirit in order to discern through this life and exercise wisdom. But part of that wisdom is remembering that our battle is for those who have been deceived, for them to be freed in Christ from those cosmic powers and principalities that grip their souls and poison their minds. Are you praying for your president? Are you praying for their liberation? For your leaders? 
whether you believe that they are godly or not. Let's, let's align with God's heart and engage in this battle. And remember, this battle is not won through legislation or political pundits and votes. I'm not saying don't get involved in that stuff. I th- I'm saying go for it. Let's go. Let's do it. But do not mistake that for the mission. Like his kingdom is not of this world and it will not be of this world until he comes back. In the meantime, our mission is to point the hearts of humanity to Jesus Christ. I'm going to say it again. It's to point the hearts the souls of humanity towards their Savior and King. Like, I'm all for godly political leaders, but better laws and better presidents don't make disciples. Making disciples who make disciples requires steadfast boldness, patience, prayer, long-suffering, compassion, a willingness to walk through difficulty and trial while speaking the truth in love without compromise. And then, and keeping the main thing the main thing. By the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. That's how the enemy is ultimately placed under the feet, conquered, defeated in this world. And so that's only possible when we operate from our identity as his secure, beloved children. Not threatened by others' words or worldviews. Because we don't strive for victory, we operate from a victory that's already been won. There's a lot of joy in that. That's why it's so important to dwell. Say dwell. To dwell in the shelter of the Most High. See, shelter here can also mean the secret place. I love this. Like a secret garden, a a secret spiritual garden, even in the midst of an earthly wilderness and wasteland. Like Like your own personal spiritual Eden with the Lord as you walk in the garden with him in the cool of the day, through this, this garden, even in the heat of this world, this is what we have access to in Christ. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. Say abide. Like this is the kind of relationship Jesus makes available to us, like even now. Like when we talk about having a daily quiet time, this is what we're talking about. Like, I'm not just talking about consuming as much Bible information as you can and and just cram it into your mind so that you can have better arguments. I'm talking about prayerfully, patiently soaking in his word and his presence and praying to him, talking to him, listening to him, worshiping him, weeping with him, walking in the cool of that spiritual garden with Jesus even now. That's... A quiet time. And I got to tell you something. My quiet times aren't very quiet most of the time. And that's good. Like asking him to open the spiritual ears of your heart and mind to change you and align you with what's true in his word and help you to be loved. That's what beloved is, right? To be loved by him. And guys, <laughs> that's the only way you're going to apply that information in the first place. Like to cultivate that secret shelter in him, that spiritual secret garden where you can dwell in him and with him and abide in him and draw near to him. And when you draw near to him, what does he do? He draws near to us. Guys, this is so important when it comes to all things spiritual warfare. Jesus not only talks about this, but he demonstrated it with his life. 
he used this kind of language. John 15, verse 4 through 6, it says this. Abide in me, this is Jesus talking. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. So the branch is the thing that produces the fruit, right? But it ain't going to produce any fruit if it's disconnected from the vine. And then he says, I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. See, ultimately, this is a battle to abide. The fruit of your testimony and the fruit of our ministry and all of the good works that we do is to be simply the natural result of truly abiding and resting in and being loved by and deeply connected in joy with your Savior and King. That's what this is all about. And you need to realize, again, you're up against more than just one enemy. This ain't just about the devil or demons, okay? Like, yes, they're real. Satan is real. They hate you, and they want to choke you out, and they want to cut you off from the source, like thorns that choke a branch and disconnect it from the vine. That's what they want to do. But your spiritual enemy isn't your only enemy. Some of you need to hear this, okay? Because your greatest enemy isn't necessarily the devil. Your greatest enemy is often you. Take this in. We'll talk about this more in the coming weeks, but you need to know that this isn't a sermon that gives you permission to just blame the devil and never take responsibility for your own sin. Like, like that phrase, the devil made me do it, not a thing. You can never say the devil made me do it. That is never an excuse. You are 100% responsible for your actions. In fact, the truth is, the grip the enemy has in anyone's life, especially a believer, is a grip that they've given him. In other words, when we indulge in sin, it's like opening a door to our souls that the enemy can then sink his claws into. Like, that's why seemingly insignificant sins have such an addictive quality to them. It's like that, like, you know, remember that, uh, that old Lay's potato chip slogan? Yeah, you can't just eat one. Once you pop, you can't stop. <laughs> John Captain just got hip-hop on us. That was... <laughs> but, and it's true. Like, I've tried it, right? Like, I've, I've done it. Like, I, you try it, and uh, you get all that salty one chip, just all that salty goodness just marinates in your mouth, and it'll plague you all day long, Right? Even if you resist, you're just like, oh, but I want one. I can't think about anything else. The only thing that will change that, the only way is to eat something better, to drink something fresh, get a different taste in your mouth. Like, put the chip back down, yes, but pick up something more satisfying. In fact, this is how it is in spiritual warfare. Like, there's actually two theological terms for this. You ready for them? Some big $5,000 seminary terms. Mortification and vivification. Okay? Mortification of sin is when you die to it. You die to yourself in that old sinful desire. Right? Think mortality. Think put the chip back down. Right? If the alcohol is a problem, pour the bottle out. If that show or social media app is a temptation, turn it off. Delete the app. And if that girl or guy is trouble, delete their number. Right? Pull a Joseph and run. Jump out the window if you need to. Die to it. Mortify it. And that sounds simple. A lot of times we're just like, oh, yeah, just put the phone down, man. Like, why can't you just, why can't you just stop? 
Well, you can, but the reason it's difficult is because there's a spiritual component going on. You're in a battle, and the stakes are real. 1 Peter 5, 8, and 9 says this, Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith. And James 4 tells us to submit ourselves to the Lord. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Now some of you in here are exhausted. And I understand you're exhausted because it feels like that's all you're doing. Maybe it feels like your whole life is just running from your own sinful desires and running from the devil. And I want you to know something. Guys, that alone is unsustainable. It's why you may be thinking, I'm just going to give up and give in. Because I'm going to tell you something. It, that is unsustainable. Like, you'll feel like you're walking through a wasteland, worn out and dying of thirst, which is where that other big word comes in, vivification. Like, this is where we drink deeply of abundant life. This is what Tim Keller talks about as, and calls the, the uh, expulsive power of a new affection. Instead of just languishing with the taste of the Lay's chip in your mouth, Drink some fresh water. Have a steak. Right? Like, if your walk with Jesus is about just about not sinning, then you're not actually walking with Jesus. You're just running from the devil. And you need to understand something. Lions, they love to chase things. He's happy to just have you running from your sin all the time. But we're not just running from sin. You're called to run to your king. This is vivification. You see, when we submit to the Lord, literally means to come under the mission, submission, to come under the mission of the Lord in Christ, we find rest and we find identity and we find purpose and we're no longer only being chased by the devil. He is now the one fleeing. This is what happens when we drink deeply of the living water we have access to in Christ. This is vivification. Matthew 11 puts it like this, verse 28 and 29. Jesus says, come to me, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. That's vivification. This is where we find living water. It's through prayer. It's through worship. It's through his word. It's through his people. It's what we're doing right now. My I hope you're being vivified. Like, that's my hope. Like, this is what we do. This is what we, what, it's when our affections are stirred up for him and our hearts are then aligned with him and in him, abiding. This, it's not just about obedience. True obedience is simply what postures you consistently, even when you don't feel like it. It postures you before the throne of grace to receive his presence and his goodness. 
That's what it's about. It's where we're filled with his spirit. And instead of running from the devil, we storm the gates of hell, praise God. That's when we don't just confess and repent. We believe and we abide. Not because you're enough, but because he is. You got nothing to prove. He's already proved it all at the cross. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, I love this. It feels in verse 2, it's like, I will say to the Lord, and it feels confusing because what he's doing here is he's articulating his soul. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Like we go into the shelter of the Most High in that secret place, that secret garden. We abide in Him. We let Him stir up our affections for Him. We draw near to Him. And when the weeds of sin try to wrap themselves around your spiritual neck and choke you off from the source, you draw near to the Lord and your ultimate gardener will prune and clip and trim and cut those weeds off. He's the one that does it. He'll cut those thorns away and even nail them to the cross where they belong. Now, it might even be scary at first, which is why it requires trust. Trust to let him go there. Trust to let him prune. Trust to let him in and to even identify that, that, that which is thorny and in need of being nailed to the cross. Your pride won't let him in. Your pride will say, I'm, I've been walking this spiritual life too long. I got no thorns. <laughs> Trust him. Trust to let him cultivate that secret place with you, even that secret Eden, which one day will manifest in its fullness upon the earth again, even better than it was before. So I want to close here with a quote, another quote from Lewis's Screwtape Letters, and, and then we're going to roll right into communion so the band can come on up here. Um, Lewis writes again as the demon worm would here to his apprentice Screwtape, and this is what he says. I want you to take this in because this, this informs even what we do during communion. He says this, It's funny how mortals always picture us as, being thing, as, as putting things into their minds. In reality, our best work is done by keeping things out. In other words... The enemy doesn't just put things in your mind that you need to mortify or die to. He wants to keep that vivification out. He wants to keep the goodness of grace in Christ Jesus and his goodness and glory as far away from you as possible. He wants to keep you isolated away from that which satisfies you. He wants you to leave here today thinking about how sinful you are. Or, not at all. But God is saying, come to me. Look, God may bring up something. He probably is right now. He's bringing something up in your mind that you need to mortify, that you need to die to, that you need to repent of and place it before the Lord. And you need to do that. But don't leave here without drinking deeply of his grace and his goodness. Because that's ultimate vivification. That's what we're feasting on, even in communion. 
And so on the night before Jesus was crucified, he sits down with his disciples and he holds up bread and he says, this is my body broken for you. Take of it and eat and do this in remembrance of me. Remember what I have done. Remember that I have taken the penalty and you no longer have to. It's finished. That's what the bread represents as it's crushed between your teeth. It represents his body being crushed upon the cross. Let that nourish you from the inside out. And then he holds up wine and he says, this is my blood poured out for you as it flows forth from the cross. It's a sign of the new covenant and the forgiveness of sins. That his grace is sufficient for you. That your sins are as far as the east is from the west if you've placed your faith and hope in what he's done for you at the cross. And so this morning, again, I want to ask you to just think about in your mind, what are you being consumed with? What consumes your heart? What consumes your mind? When you're driving in the car, when you're in your bed at night and laying your head on the pillow, what is churning and burning and running through your mind? What consumes you? What are you consuming? And if it's not the Lord, I want you to... those are the things where we, maybe it's a deadline, maybe it's relational strain, maybe it's worry or anxiety. The cares of this world will absolutely consume you. But I want to encourage you to lay that before the Lord this morning, okay? And as we come forward this morning, if you're not a believer, then I would ask that you stay at your seat, that you continue to pray and gather with us week in and week out. We want to get to know you. I'd love to talk through and walk through this process with you. But maybe you're hearing these things and you're saying, you know what, I'm all in, man. I want Jesus. I don't have it all figured out, but I, I, I want to know him. I believe that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave for me, and I want to follow him and and look to him as my all-satisfying Savior and King. If that's you, then I want to welcome you to come forward with us. By doing so, you're saying you're a Christian and you're in. But if you're not ready to do that, then I would ask that you stay at your seat. But if you are, then again, I want you to just allow the Lord to bring up that which you might need to mortify and then feast upon that which vivifies, okay? Which is his body and his blood and his grace and his goodness and his glory. Let me close in prayer and I want to pray the first couple of verses from both Psalm 91 and Psalm 127 over you. So if you guys would, why don't you stand with me as I pray over you. I'm praying this not just over you, but over me as well, okay? So God, we come to you, Lord, as your people, and we ask that you would just immerse us in your love and your grace, that it would be all satisfying, that we would, God, as the psalmist says in 91, that we would dwell with you, God. We thank you that you are a good dwelling place, and Father, we ask that you would help us, draw us, to yourself, to hide and dwell in the shelter of the Most High. God, forgive us for places that we have run to lesser things or lesser saviors. And God, I ask that you would help us all to abide in the shadow of the Almighty, to trust in you, God, and and walk with you throughout the day. Lord, we say to you that you are our refuge and our fortress and our God in whom we trust. And so God, I pray that you'd remind us of whatever is in front of us, the things that you have placed in front of us, the things that may bring anxiety or fear or uncertainty to us. Lord, I pray that you would remind us that unless you build the house, those who build it 
labor in vain. And so, God, we come to you and we lay down our vanity before you and we declare your kingdom is what we're after. And we pray your kingdom come and your will be done in Virginia Beach and in our city and in our families and in this church as it is in heaven. And so, Lord, we ask that you would watch over our city, that you would watch over our families and our church, that you would watch over our own lives. Because, God, if we, without you, Lord, we're staying awake anxiously in vain. It's in vain that we rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. And so, God, we declare that you are the bread we eat. You are the bread we feast upon. You are the bread of life. And I pray that you would give us an insatiable hunger for you and your presence and your word. For you give your beloved sleep. And so now, Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. May the power of God sanctify, set apart, and deliver us from anything that is not of you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.